This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr Christine Sortica de Costa, who's one of the neonatal intensive care consultants at Great Ormond Street. She's going to be speaking to me about necrotizing enterocolitis, covering pathophysiology, diagnosis and management of these neonates. This corresponds to the neonatology section of the MRC PCH curriculum. Thank you very much, Christine, for coming on the show today. Thank you, Emma, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Can I start by asking, what would you like people to get out of this podcast today? I guess to get a bit of more knowledge about necrotizing enterocolitis, and hopefully they can probably feel more confident to go to the exams and answering the questions around this topic. Fantastic. So I guess to start with, what is necrotizing enterocolitis or NEC, which I'll abbreviate it to just to stop us having to repeat that long phrase again? What is NEC? So NEC is known as an acute inflammatory disease that involves necrosis of the bowel in different degrees and severity. It's commonly seen in preterm infants, but sometimes we can see this condition in term infants as well. Okay. And what is the underlying pathophysiology? You referred to it as an inflammatory condition, but do we know anything more about the exact pathology underlying it? Often when we start treating necrotizing enterocolitis, we start babies on antibiotics. So many people think that neck is actually caused by an infection in the gut. But then there is a hypothesis that actually neck is not directly caused by the infection, but it's the presence of an abnormal microbial flora in addition to the risk factors that is associated with ischemia of the bowel that could lead to the initiation of the disease. Which means that ischemia can be caused by a change in the blood flow away from the gut. So what happens is some babies will be under stress. And when the body is under stress, our body tends to protect the vital organs like the heart, the brain, and the adrenals. So what we usually see is when there is any kind of hypoxia, for example, in either preterm or term babies, the blood flow to the gut is diverted to these main organs. And then, then this is what can lead these babies to have an ischemic change in the bowels. So the clinical factors associated with this change in the blood flow to the gut can be associated with necrotizing enterocolitis. So often when we see, for example, a preterm infant with a very bad initial days with hypotension or was very sick in the beginning, usually when you look at the history of these babies, they will develop neck after a few weeks. So there are some other factors that can be associated with the development of necrotizing enterocolitis. And there is some evidence that the presence of umbilical arterial capsters could put these babies at risk, but there is not really strong significant evidence like in papers and in data. 
But what we really should think about when we have a baby with an umbilical arterial line is actually this, this line is well positioned. Because if the line is sitting around the level of the mesenteries, then you might be stealing blood every time you sample this line. And then we are going to be putting the gut at risk of having ischemia as well. Another factor that is associated with the pathophysiology of men is uh, the presence of the persistent ductus arteriosus, which we usually we see in preterm infants. So there is a lot about the presence of a reverse diastolic flow in the abdominal aorta caused by a significant PDA being related with uh, necrotizing tuberculosis. But the evidence, again, it's not convincing. However, if you have a baby who has a significant PDA, you might just need to be aware that this baby might be at risk to have necrotizing tuberculosis. And more recently, there is this evidence as well that transfusions could be related with necrotizing trochoitis. And there are several trials going on to try to assess if this is true. So I don't think there is enough evidence to say that transfusing a preterm baby can put them at risk to have neck. But there is also an important factor, which is antenatal use of cocaine by the mothers. Some animal studies have shown that actually when you have exposure to cocaine, there is a vasoconstriction in the intestinal circulation in fetal life. So we, we just need to be aware of the antenatal history as well when we're looking at the babies. Right, okay. So, I mean, it sounds like from what you're saying that NEC is kind of an end result that could arise from, from multiple different pathologies. So it's not necessarily the same underlying pathophysiology, but it could be caused by different things in different babies. Is that correct? Exactly. So we talked a lot about ischemia because ischemia is the pathophysiological change that we usually find, especially when the babies have surgery. But there are several risk factors around the change of the microbiome of the gut, the changes in osmolarity as well. These all can put this baby at risk of NEC. So how common is NEC as a condition? And you've mentioned a bit about some of the things that are known to be associated with NEC in terms of associations with the underlying pathology. But are there any particular risk factors that are really important to be aware of because they show a definite link with the development of NEC? So prematurity is the well-known risk factor for the development of necrotizing trochoitis. And when prematurity is associated with any risk factor that is associated with gut ischemia or low perfusion to the gut, then we could say that these babies are at even more risk of developing necrotizing trochoitis. So it can happen also in term babies, but it's not as common as in preterms. The incidence also can vary geographically and I guess can vary according to the care of these babies from birth. So if you see studies from America compared to studies from Europe, you might see different incidence. However, the range usually is between 2 to 10% of preterm infants born with a birth weight less than 1.5. And the incidence in preterm babies actually is inversely correlated with the gestational age at birth. So the more preterm you are, the higher risk will be of having neck. It's not usually seen in term infants, but in term infants, it's associated with other factors such as congenital heart disease when there is hypoxic brain injury. 
or hypoxic injury because sometimes the brain can be protected, but the gut can be under effect of hypoxia. And also well-known is intrauterine growth restriction when basically they stop growing in utero. So it's interesting as well because the age of onset is earlier in term babies compared to preterms. So infants born at term, if they are prone to develop net, you're going to see the onset of symptoms usually between day three to five day of life. However, in preterm infants, usually the onset of disease is between three to four weeks of life. And it's said that actually the mortality, especially in the preterm infants, can get up to 25 to 30% in the most severe cases. And then 50% of these infants will require a surgery as well. That's really interesting. So can we talk a little bit more about presentation? So you've mentioned that term infants with NEC tend to present earlier than preterm infants who go on to develop NEC. But is there a typical presentation for how these neonates tend to present? What signs and symptoms do you usually tend to see? So symptoms are very variable, but the most common symptoms that you're going to see and you're going to read about, it's about abdominal distension, a baby who was previously well and feeding and then suddenly start vomiting, or a baby that is suddenly having increased volume gastric aspirates from the nasogastric tube. And especially when these aspirates become green and especially dark green. And also you might see a baby having blood in the stools is also an indication that neck could be in place. So on, on examination, you might see a baby that has a tender abdomen with discoloration sometimes. Some systemic and non-specific signs frequently are present, such as temperature instability, apnea, a baby who is lethargic and hypotensive as well. So the more severe cases, they will progress quite quickly. You might see a patient who was well in the morning and then in the afternoon is in septic shock with vasodilation, intravascular volume depletion. You do a gas and you find severe metabolic acidosis, high lactates, and these babies sometimes will present as well with thrombocytopenia in a high white cell count. Often these babies needing volume, like boluses of saline and also use of vasopressors. And then speaking a bit more now about the investigations you would do, is there a way of formally diagnosing it? How are investigations important as part of the workup for the condition? The radiological diagnostic hallmark is the presence of pneumatosis intestinalis, which basically represents the presence of gas in the bowel wall. But also, if you, on the x-ray you see the presence of portal venal gas, this is also a sign of necrotizing colitis and not necessarily you need to have pneumatosis. If you have venous portal gas, then this is the mark of men as well. In more severe cases, when this intramural gas progresses and you have bowel perforation, you might see a new peritoneum on your x-ray. But sometimes you do an x-ray, you just see bowel dilatation and also maybe thickening of the bowel wall. And then you will probably combine that with the physical examination of this patient 
And together with that, you will do some lab blood tests as well. So you may see rising CRP, however, you need to remember that CRP, it's, it's quite a late marker of infection or inflammation. You also could see increase in white cell count and thrombocytopenia is usually seen as well in these patients. Okay. So in terms of the abdominal film, you mentioned that there are features on the x-ray that can be diagnostic for NEC. Is it possible to have a completely normal abdominal x-ray in the presence of NEC or would you usually always expect to find some abnormal features? So you might see a normal x-ray if you are in the beginning of the onset of the disease and you have what we call suspected neck. So when you study about necrotizing tricholitis, you might come across a staging criteria called modified bell. And we stage the disease between suspect and definite and advanced. So in cases where you're suspecting that there is necrotizing tricholitis, not necessarily you're going to see an abnormal x-ray. You're going to see just a mild virus, like a septic virus, or even a normal bowel on the x-rays. But to have confirmed diagnosis is often seen when you have a pneumatosis on your X-ray. The modified bell staging criteria is used sometimes for exams, but not necessarily is used for clinical management of these patients. But it's a guidance to tell us the cases where we are suspecting there is necrotizing trocholetis and the ones which are confirmed. Because sometimes the management might be the same. You might want to keep this base new up and start on antibiotics. But maybe the length of duration of your treatment will be different if it's compliant or suspected. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Are there any important differential diagnoses to exclude that can mimic NEC that you might be presented with in the exam that it would be important to exclude? Or even in kind of real life, when you're managing a neonate with suspected NEC, what are the differential diagnoses that you want to rule out? So the most common differential diagnosis is actually a baby with septic iron. So you're going to see a baby who is, has signs of infection, has abdominal distension, you do an x-ray and you might see dilated bowels, but you won't see pneumatosis. So you might want to keep this baby in your by mouth at least for 24, 48 hours and reassess the progress. And this is why sometimes the bell stage is helpful because some of these babies will progress and develop neurotosis and be diagnosed with neck. But some of them then later on, after you get the cultures back or more blood tests back, you will see that actually was infection and systemic infection caused some kind of septic island and adjusted bowels being slower and more distended. Another very common differential diagnosis, but is also, again, very questionable if it's not really related with neck, it's the spontaneous bowel perforation, or commonly seen as SIPC. So you will come across several papers and some textbooks that fit this, this disease or this diagnosis in a kind of a different spectrum from necrotizing trochoitis. But you also will find some authors who relate both of them. Because sometimes babies will have spontaneous bowel perforation. They will have as well areas of necrotic bowel around the area that's uh, perforated. 
But basically, the difference is the presentation and the time of presentation as well. SIP is usually presented within the first days of life. Men is usually seen in very tiny preterm babies who had some degree of hypoxia in utero or so after birth. The use of hydrocortisone has been related with the in the past in previous studies. Nowadays that we have been using more hydrocortisone for chronic lung disease, this correlation is still not well established. Okay, sure. Moving on now to management. Firstly, thinking about kind of prevention. Are there any measures that can be taken to prevent NEC occurring in high-risk babies or that could minimize its severity if it does occur? This is a good question, but it's also a difficult question to answer because if you try to do a literature review on the topic or if you like this subject and you like to go into doing research around this thing, you're going to find a lot of controversies. So we know that actually the onset of necrotized enterocolitis, especially for the cases that are very severe, the disease actually progressed quite quickly. And then after the diagnosis is made, it's very difficult to reverse the course of the disease. And it's, it's sometimes very difficult to understand how much of the bowel will be affected in the long-term outcomes from that point, but from the onset of the symptoms. The best thing to do then is just to manage the patients and support them. But the only well-known and well-accepted way to prevent neck is actually feeding infants, especially the preterm infants, with breast milk. So feeding protocols and slow progress with enteral feeding, these measurements have also been suggested as preventive, but nothing has been as strong as giving breast milk to these babies. The use of formula has strongly been associated with the development of neck. And one of the reasons for that is it's probably due to the change in the osmolarity. And this is also the reason why sometimes feeding this baby very quickly can put them at risk to have neck because you might just cause bowel distension. You might change the osmolarity inside the gut and that can put them prone to have necrotizing enterocolitis. The breast milk is also very rich in immunoproducts, you know, like, you know, globulins, and it helps these preterm infants as well to create some kind of defense because the immature gut is not strong enough to deal with the balance in the changes in, in the flora that is caused by the changes in osmolarity as well. The use of probiotics that you might see in more recent papers has been suggested as one of protective measurements and to avoid the development of neck. However, trials are still underway and the data remains very conflicting. Right. Okay. So actually breast milk is the priority for these at-risk babies, whether that be expressed milk from the mother or donor breast milk in some cases. Exactly. Yes. If the mother's consent for donor milk, and then you can use that. In cases where moms cannot breastfeed or provide breast milk and they also refuse donor milk. So then these are cases where we have to carefully assess which kind of formula we are going to use for these patients. And there are nowadays some preterm formulas that are hydrolyzed or more gentle for the gut as well. But I will leave this topic for maybe another podcast with a dietitian. Sure. And how do you manage established NEC? 
So as I said, once the disease is established and has started, it's very difficult to control. And it's very difficult as well sometimes to predict how quickly these babies will deteriorate. So it's really important to support the care of these patients. So the first thing to do when you suspect that is to keep the baby new by mouth. You stop feeding them and start them on some IV fluids. Hydration is quite important as well. So then you order an abdominal x-ray and you will ideally discuss these findings with your consultant or with a surgical consultant as well. Or if you have radiologist on site, you ask the radiologist to double check if there are any signs of pneumatosis on your x-ray. So you then start these babies on antibiotics. We usually use a mixture of triple antibiotics. Each center will use different guidelines for antibiotics. A lot of centers use Benpen, Gentamicin, Micacin, and Metronidazole. But then if you have a baby who has been on the neonatal unit for a few weeks and has a central line, you might want to start them on something stronger, such as vancomycin and Piptaz. So I will recommend you to follow the guidelines from your institution. You need to monitor sweet balance as well. So if they are having large aspirates or if they seem to be intravascular depleted, you should replace fluids or also replace blood products because if they are severely hydrocytopenic or if they are anemic, you should transfuse them red cells or platelets. The length of the treatment is very questionable, but often antibiotics are continued for seven to 10 days in the most severe cases, especially. And feeding will be restarted just after the antibiotics are discontinued. And it's also important when you are starting feeding these babies to feed them very slowly and observe the tolerance to feed again. Because often we see that even after recovery from that, they might not tolerate feeding very well for a good few weeks. Between 10 to 30% of these patients will deteriorate and become really sick. It's quite important to observe any signs such as apnea because you might have to decide to intubate and ventilate these babies quite early. And 50% of them will need surgical intervention. The indicational procedure can include the presence of pneumoperitoneum, like the bowel perforation. But not necessarily. Sometimes you see babies who have progressed and remain very sick for a few days and you see the x-ray and there is a presence of like a fixed and dilated bowel. And when this is associated with clinical deterioration, the surgeons might have to intervene to remove this part of the bowel, which is ischemic, and also to allow us to decompress the abdomen. And most of the time, the indication for surgery, if there is no bowel perforation, is actually decompress the abdomen and help us to ventilate these patients. So timing for surgery is also very difficult to predict. What's the prognosis like for these infants? Survival can reach 70% of the cases, which sounds quite optimistic. However, if you think that maybe 30% of them might die, but this is usually the ones who are very sick and especially the very preterm infants. Long-term complications are usually seen in these patients. The most common ones are strictures that will need further surgical interventions. And sometimes these patients can show strictures even when they didn't have surgical procedure before, just because the bowel was ischemic or inflamed 
that can pause the strictures. And you might see that later on when we start feeding these babies and they don't tolerate feeding. And the other common as well-known long-term complication is short bowel syndrome, which is not seen in the majority of the patients, but it's seen very often in the tiny preterm babies, especially the ones born with birth weight less than 1.5 kilos. Another long-term complication is impairment in the neurodevelopmental progress, like patients with neck are often seen with cerebral palsy and other cognitive delays. It's not very unusual to do a cranial ultrasound a few weeks after a severe case of necrotizing enterocolitis and find severe PVL or periventricular accumulation, which is those cystic chains in the periventricular area that we see in preterm infants who suffered of hypoxic and inflammation. Which is very sad because sometimes these babies go through the first days of life not having any intraventricular hemorrhage and they go very well and through the initial phase, but then they develop neck and then because of the high degree of inflammation that can put the brain at risk to develop PVL. Finally, just moving on to our standard quick fire questions that we ask to everybody on this podcast. Are there any classic exam questions that tend to pop up about this subject that you know of? So I haven't done MRC-PCH exams myself, but I have done several other exams. And if I was an examiner and I was preparing questions, I will definitely prepare questions around the diagnosis or how do you diagnose this, how do you differentiate uh, what is neck and what is not neck and how you manage these patients. And not just because these questions are important for exams, but this is very important for your clinical practice. So what we want to judge when you are doing exams is to actually test the knowledge that they have to practice pediatrics or neonatology. So I would be very careful in revising the criteria for diagnosis of neck and management and a little bit along long-term outcome is quite important as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, I think. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend to listeners who want to find out more about NEC? Yes, there is plenty. When I, I teach the junior doctors or the medical students, I usually say that you should read papers that are review papers instead of studies to learn about the subject. So there are several journals that publish review papers on several topics. And there are some good papers, especially on seminars of fetal and neonatal medicine journal and some other neonatal journals as well that they usually write a good review. A few years ago, there was a good review also in New England Journal of Medicine about necrotizing enterocolitis. And sometimes we forget as well about our lovely textbooks in neonatology. I think they are usually quite good, especially if you are reading the latest editions. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from the podcast today? Be careful when you have a preterm baby that develops abdominal distension. Always examine your patients because sometimes you have a baby who is well and then suddenly this baby becomes unwell. And then if you have examined this baby before, and it's going to be easier to compare the examination. So 
when you are in your day shift, night shift, always go and see your babies. They will tell you when they are not well. And if they don't, look at the markers, look at the vital signs. We nowadays, they have good monitors that can monitor vital signs very well and blood tests as well. And don't delay keeping them new by mouth if you suspect me. It's fine. You can restart feeds again after you discuss with your consultant, after you have an x-ray. But if you suspect the baby has necrotized enterocolitis, then immediately pet them new by mouth and start them on the antibiotics. Better to be safe than sorry in those cases, I imagine. Yes. Great. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me today and for such an excellent summary of NEC. Thank you for the opportunity and I hope this will be helpful for many junior doctors and students. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRC-PCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.